0: This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au. So today I'm going to continue a series uh, that we've been going through called Eyes at Sea and the heart of this series is to talk about love and culture and worship and Yeah, and and the the idea of eyes that see is that we just have this heart that we want us to be able to see things the way that God sees things. And sometimes the way God sees things is just not the way we see it in our culture. Uh, Now, what I want to do is I usually finish or conclude a series with a bit of a wrap-up or summary of what we've said so far. So if you've missed some of the talks, then obviously this will be fairly quick, but I'd really encourage you to have a listen to all of them online. Uh, And next week, we'll actually conclude the series for, well, next week, next fortnight. It's actually Easter Sunday, so I'm really excited about celebrating together. Uh, But Easter Sunday is usually a little bit shorter in terms of the talk for people who might not come to church regularly, so I thought I'd summarise today. And my clicker is kind of working. Here we are. So we have been talking about culture And we've been talking about what it looks like to be in culture and to be immersed in a culture that is different from our own, and the idea that our culture shapes us in ways that we can't always see. And in particular, we've been talking about this concept, this biblical idea of idolatry, which is the idea that we as human beings have a tendency to put our trust, our love, and our longings into someone or something that is not necessarily God. And we do it accidentally. Uh, But as we orientate our heart around idols or little gods, then we become or mirror the people we worship. And look, in ancient times, obviously, uh, people actually worshipped statues, which were like little images of God, and there was power behind them. Today, in our culture, we tend to love things or people above God that just look ordinary, that we don't necessarily see as religious things. But uh, whatever we love above and beyond God, and whatever we put first as the functional master of our heart, can become what the Older and Newer Testaments call idols. And we talked in depth about this idea of monotheism, which is a doctrine that talks about the oneness of God, and we spent a lot of time talking about this, the idea that um, there is just one God, but In our culture, as I explained a few weeks ago, uh, we can have this idea that monotheism means that there's one God and nothing else. But that's actually not a biblical understanding of monotheism. Biblical monotheism means that there is one God above all things, Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim is the biblical term. And yet there are many spiritual beings uh, in heaven and spiritual beings and, and people on earth that God is above and uh, beyond. And so this idea of monotheism is that there are spiritual forces or even the term little gods is something that the scriptures would use, uh, but God is above all in a category all of his own. And so we talked about this biblical word Elohim from the Older Testament, which means God or gods. Uh, Interestingly, pagan gods, uh, the little G-god, is the same word Elohim as big G-god, Yahweh Elohim, so which can be confusing. But we've talked about the idea that there is only one spiritual being above all things, Uh, and this matters, though, because uh, we also don't want to lose sight that there are spiritual forces that impact our lives day by day, and that shape us and transform the way we live and act. They shape our lives, our cities, our cultures, and we want to have our eyes open to the spiritual realm, knowing that there is only one God above all. But it doesn't mean that there aren't spiritual beings <clears throat> that impact our lives. Uh, and and really, the old gods. Need a drink. The old gods of sex, money, and power still exist. We just don't call them idols. We don't call them gods. We just call them things. Life. It's just life, isn't it? Uh, and yet, if we if if um, either of these if any of these things or people become the functional master of our heart if they become ultimately important if they are what we dream and think about constantly day in day out and find our identity in well then possibly we can uh, we can worship things above and beyond Yahweh and then last fortnight we continued and, and Michael uh, Michael Wood did a great talk about Yahweh kana hope i said that right But um, that's the word that God gave to Moses in the book of Exodus, and it actually means "I am the jealous God, the God above all things, the God who wants our undivided love." He doesn't want us worshiping other little gods or other Elohim. He wants us to worship Him and Him alone. And Michael did this great description of the 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 history of the book of uh, from the book of Kings and Samuel, where we read about the history of the kings of Israel. And there were six good kings, there were six bad kings, and a whole bunch of kind of meh kings, I think, is what we can call them, ordinary kings. And That's my interpretation, meh kings, all right? And, uh, and, and these, the difference is, I found this fascinating, that the difference between good kings and bad kings is that the good kings tore down the shrines and the sacred idols, the worship of other gods, whereas the bad kings promoted them. And you see this right throughout Scripture, which is fascinating. And and what I loved about Michael's description is he, he ended up with broccoli, you know, as we always do. And this is a picture of broccoli, and it kind of gets smaller and smaller. And he said that the more you dive into it, the more you see the pattern, uh, and it's always the same. And that's the thing about God's pattern, that no matter where we look at it, in, in different kind of zooming in or zooming out, it's always the same, that whenever we destroy the idols that compete for God's attention and put Him first, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Whenever we love God first, things go well. Whenever we turn away as individuals and as a culture, then uh, we start to worship other little beings and things don't go well. Uh, and, and to finish with what Michael was talking about, he had this description of uh, what it looks like to put God first. And I loved his description from his own life. But he, he talked about you know when he first became a Christian, he, he was passionate about God and wanted God to be... Uh, all things the highest priority in his life. I hope I'm describing this all right. But, uh, and that's described by this white dot. But over time, uh, he said that study and family and hobbies and friends and travel and the worries of the world, technology you know all these different things started to, to kind of just take part in his life. And, and so you ended up with this, function, this, this uh, description of life where faith becomes compartmentalised into a little box, or a little circle in this case. Uh, And and it's just what you do on Sundays, or it's what you do at worship practice, or it's what you do when you read the Bible. But the rest of life is not really a God thing. So you end up with dualism, where you've got the sacred and the secular, and you just hope you can juggle enough of God in to do your Christian thing. but this is not functional monotheism. It's actually not what it means to love one God, because one God is not about the fact that there's one God. It's about the fact that God is priority and oriented in all of your life. So, what Michael wasn't saying is that we shouldn't have fun or that we shouldn't enjoy the beautiful breadth and depth of activities that God puts in our life family and work and travel, all these things are wonderful, and yet we can orientate them with God at the center or we can just squeeze them off to the side and, and make them our own. Uh, and there's something just that is beautiful and rich and wondrous about God, who is the God of all of our lives, where we don't compartmentalize our lives, but all of our life comes under him. And that takes a bit of learning. Um, and that's part of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus, to allow our unbelief to turn into belief in every area of our lives. And the beautiful thing is, that God is bigger than the box. He has a big box (laughs) and it's very wide and as we orientate our life under him, he actually enhances the things we can do and who we can be as opposed to kind of shutting us down. And that's what it means to have an integrated faith and because God calls us to have one God, he'll help us to do it, which is what I want to talk about today. And I suppose my last slide as a recap is that this is what I was trying to say. I think the dots say it better, but uh, we, we are to be monotheists, which means that there is one God for work, family, life, sport, travel, church, recycling. One God over all that informs who we are and how we live. And that is what it means to be a monotheist. Do you follow? It's really important. It's very functional and it impacts our day-to-day lives. So, with that in mind, we're going to talk about how that looks in a culture which does not honour God. And I love this idea of being a hopeful remnant, which means to be a faithful, uh, left-over people. A remnant is kind of the leftover dregs. (laughs) We're the leftover ones who are still in church and yet we can be hopeful and trust in God, and God will do some amazing things as we love Him above all else and allow all of our lives to be filled white with His circled love. So my heart today is to encourage all of us to be faithful and true to the one true God uh, in a culture that is increasingly anti-God. And uh, and what I want to acknowledge is, uh, the reason I want to talk about this is, is it is so hard nowadays in secular Aussie culture to be a remnant. It is increasingly difficult to put God first in our lives and to prioritize Him and to put our trust in Him and not simply follow the norms and fit in with the culture and pressures of our age. But if we can resist and if we can be firm to our faith, God allows us to be a blessing, not just to ourselves, but a blessing to culture. We we are blessed by trusting in Him to be a blessing. And this is what we're going to talk about. And to do that, we're going to talk a lot about uh, the Old Testament. My favourite, one of my favourite books in the Bible. It's just a really good name, don't you think? The Book of Daniel, it's just got a ring to it. I don't know. Um, We're going to talk about the Book of Daniel. Uh, Ironically, I was named... Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. Um, And... Uh, follow my notes. All right, so the book of Daniel is a wonderful and rich and beautiful book. It's in the Older Testament. Uh, it's kind of near the, the second, uh, the last third of the Older Testament, which is beautiful. If you haven't read the book of Daniel before or you haven't read it for ages, I, I dare you to read it this week because it is an amazing book that speaks deeply into what it looks like to be faithful and to be a hopeful remnant in times of difficulty. Uh, Even if you just read the first six books, Daniel 1 to 6, chapter 1 to 6, uh, you will find the most amazing, interesting stories, and they all say the same thing. And Daniel is very important. It's an important book because it teaches us to be faithful in a culture that does not follow our ways and calls us out of the worship of God, which is very relevant to us in the secular West. And so the book is about how to be hopeful and faithful and joyful when we're under pressure and how to thrive, not just survive, when society demands that we live against God's word. We should read this book. You follow? All right. So when we think of the book of Daniel, we always think of lions, don't we? All right? Daniel the lion's den, you know. I remember when I got baptised. I didn't know much about God at all. I just knew that Jesus loved me and that I wanted to follow God. I'd never really been. I don't think I'd ever been to church. I didn't have that background. And someone said, if I get baptized, I'll get presents. And I thought I'd get a skateboard, but I just got a whole lot of books about the Book of Daniel. I'm like, oh come on, like, you know, that wasn't worth it. But Jesus was lucky. So um, anyway, but I got all these books about Daniel and the lion's den. And that's what we remember, right? But there are some other amazing stories. And uh, one of the lesser-known stories is from chapter 1. And I was trying to think of, you know, which story do I pick from the book of Daniel? Because they're all fantastic, and they all say the same thing. But I thought, because Michael brought up broccoli, we're going to go with the broccoli theme. We're going to go Daniel and uh, Daniel and the plate of broccoli. All right, so this is my new... This is is Daniel and the plate plate of broccoli rather than the lion's den. And we're going to go into the first chapter. So, Daniel and the bro- or plate of veggies or plate of broccoli began around 600 BC. I won't go there yet. Uh, and that's 600 years before Jesus, so it's a long, long time. This is before the Greeks, this is before the Romans. Okay, So it was, it was during the time of the Babylonian Empire, uh, which actually led to the Greek Empire. But um, it was a time where there was a new superpower and a new emperor called King Nebuchadnezzar. I just think that name's cool. So King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he basically went through the the European world and the Middle East, and he he took over a whole lot of different nations to establish the Babylonian kingdom, and one of them was Jerusalem. So he laid siege to Jerusalem, which is where the Israelites lived, and he pillaged the city, he destroyed their temple, he pulled down their walls, uh, and he took the Jewish people into what the biblical authors call exile. Really important concept for us today these were bad times. Now, what was fascinating is that the Babylonians had a method of subjugating and controlling the people that they took over, which actually the Romans ended up doing even better, and that's why they survived in part for a 1,000 years. So what they would do is they wanted to, to destroy the cultures that they actually overtook. And so they took all the wealthy people, they took the wealthy landowners, the nobles, the educated people, and, and they put them in chains, and they actually walked them to Babylon, which is, you know, in modern-day Iraq. It's a long way to take people in chains. Uh, and, and by doing that, or, only the poor and uneducated people were left behind, and the wealthy rich nobles were taken to Babylon. So this was both humiliating, but it also tore the fabric of society apart. And uh, it was about trying to help the cultures to assimilate. Uh, so they wanted us to. They wanted the Syrians to stop being Syrians, the Egyptians to stop being Egyptians. They wanted the Jews to stop being Jews, and to do that, they needed them to think and act like the culture around them. You can see the similarities. And so, in chapter one, we read about four Jewish men: Daniel. It is a good name, isn't it? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael. Yeah, 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 and, and Azaria. We're going to talk about changing names, actually. If, I was, if if Daniel was in Australia, it'd be like, are you changing your name to Dan and Tim will be Timbo? I don't know. We'll work it out. Um, I'm being distracted. So the, uh, you, you distracted me, Tim. The, uh, the, the guys were given Babylonian names, all right? So we read here, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he was given the name Belteshazzar, okay? For the other three, they were given the names Shadrach, Meshach, And Abednego, we know those names. So they're Babylonian names. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you can get the rich and bright people from any culture and change their name, what do you do? You change their identity. And you change their diet. You change their language. You change their religious celebrations. And over time, maybe not in one generation, but over generations, what happens? They become Babylonian, which is the point. And what's interesting is we don't get a sense from this starting chapter that Daniel or his friends were necessarily against or resistant to the idea of a name change. I mean, they were in Babylon, they were slaves, they were exiles and they needed to accept reality. And so they embraced as much as they could of Babylonian culture and lived differently until they were forced to make a choice between whether or not they followed culture to fit in or whether they chose to follow Yahweh Elohim, the Lord their God. When they were forced to make a choice to either reject God's ways or to follow culture, they ended up in a conundrum. And this is what we read about in every story for the first six chapters of Daniel. And the conundrum began with meat and wine. So, the king assigned them a daily amount of food... And wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained, so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. This is a problem, okay? It's a problem because Daniel and his friends had been selected uh, to be amongst a group of nobles from different cultures who would get together and they would be fed choice food, they'd be educated in Babylonian ways, and they would be groomed to work in the government. Sounds pretty cool. You know, you get cheese, you get wine, you probably get, you know, women in those days, and you get all this stuff, uh, you get educated, and then you become wealthy. You don't have to act like a slave. And yet this was really problematic for these four Jewish men because they were called to eat in a way that disobeyed the food laws that they had been handed down by Moses in the Torah. They, they, were, they would have to disobey God's law in order to follow this instruction. And so this is where we end up with a problem because Jewish people are not allowed to eat pig. They're not allowed to eat cheese or blood products. They weren't allowed to eat like the Babylonians would eat. Otherwise, they were disobeying God. It wasn't just about health. It was about faithfulness. And it might seem like just a little thing, you know, just have a little bit of bacon and a little bit of vino and and just don't stress too much. Just Fit in but if they were to do that with one little thing when god clearly said you can't do it well then what would happen next you know if you say no to one thing and it's the next thing and it's the next thing and eventually you actually just assimilate and you give up on your faith and you become like the people around you and you lose the ability to transform culture and you lose the ability to worship the jealous god can you see the conundrum for these guys uh And and so they had to make a choice. And so this is what we read. But Daniel and his friends resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So God had caused, because God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Now, it's not as simple as Daniel and his friends going, Hey, nah, no, thank you. I'm a vegetarian, you know. It, it, it just it wasn't about the vegetables. At that time, I mean, by refusing to eat meat, they were refusing to be Babylonian. They were actually rejecting the empire that had embraced them. And you don't do that as slaves. You don't just go up to Pharaoh and say, Yeah, I don't feel like working today. I'm just going to put my feet up and do my own thing. Uh, and yet, because these guys were faithful, God did something to allow them to be faithful in a culture that was not their own and he gave favor to the official who actually allowed them to eat vegetarian for 10 days and he said if in 10 days you don't look weak and pale and pasty and if we can't tell the difference between you and the other men then we will allow you to keep the diet but otherwise we can't do it because my head will be on the block and they agreed and the royal official allowed that to happen And what we read is that in God's grace, this is not about the diet, it's because of the grace of God, the men became healthier and better nourished and fitter and stronger than all the Babylonians because they chose to obey Yahweh. And this is what we read. To these four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds given by the Elohim, God. Uh, The king found them ten times better than the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. So by being faithful and refusing to bow down to the Babylonian gods, Daniel and his four friends became the head and not the tail of culture. And they were able to actually lead the cultures they were in, even though they had no power and they were slaves in Exile. And that is a vision, I think, of what it looks like to love God first in a culture that is not our own. Make sense? Okay. So this is the bacon test. Maybe the broccoli test. I don't know. So This is the bacon test. Daniel and his friends were tested. And, and the story, as we must, we must gather this, Okay, it is not about the food that they ate. It's about who... Or what they put first in terms of their worship, which is why it fits this series. And there will be times in our culture, you know, in secular Aussie cultures, just which look so normal to us because we're fish in water, where we will be forced to make exactly the same choice. Do we choose the bacon? <laughs> Or do we choose the broccoli? You know, do we choose to follow God in spite of persecution or do we choose to just go with the flow? And, and that's a challenge for every one of us, whether we're young, whether we're older. Uh, we're, all, we're all in this situation. And, uh, and so I suppose the question is, you know, what's the broccoli or bacon test? I don't know which one I call it. What is the test for you in our culture? Um, what types of things does everyone else do that is not in line with God's ideal for faithful, holy living uh, for us as apprentices of Jesus? Can Can anyone think? Just pause for a moment. Can anyone think of anything that is just a bacon test for you or for us in our culture? Work. Yeah, work, work, work until you don't rest. Yeah, it's all about you and we don't have to trust in God. Whereas God worked for six days and rested on the seventh, yeah big one, yeah sport on Sundays, sport on Sundays. yeah yeah will we will we make the choice to do the stuff that everyone 's doing and then therefore not become part of a church community, yeah shopping on a Sunday, yeah, same thing absolutely yeah yeah we 've lost all of the kind of puritan laws that, that, that the blue laws that defined and a space where we just didn't work. It's all linked in, isn't it? It's interesting. Any other questions? Any thoughts? Easter Sunday. Yeah, we can get Easter eggs in the shops in like what December now. Uh, any other any other thoughts? Just short ones. What we our time and money? Yeah. yeah. Look, there's so many, aren't there? And I'm sure for younger people, they would say different things as well. But, but right throughout, you know, we, we have these little tests and they might seem small, but, but are we able to, to look to Daniel and his example in the, in the book of Daniel and actually make those choices and to trust that not only is God going to allow us to be faithful, even in times of difficulty, uh, but he'll actually make us stronger and he will bless us to be a blessing as we hold firm to him. And it's a challenge. So just pause for a minute and reflect on what God say to you, and then we're going to look at culture. Okay. So I think there is a growing gap between the Word of God, so what the Scriptures say are good and right and wise, and... Secular Aussie culture. What the media, what the education system, what social media says is good and wise and just. Okay, Now, this is particularly true in areas of money, I think. Gender, sexuality, uh, but also refugees, poverty, wealth, family. Like There are so many areas where the bacon test is becoming more and more stark for us as apprentices of Jesus. And there has always been a gap. I don't buy that we were ever uh, a Christian culture in the sense that you know everything we did was godly and everything that was you know like it's just it's just not reality. Okay, Uh, there, there has always been a gap between Aussie culture. There's been beautiful things that connect with the Word of God, and there have always been things that don't connect with the Word of God. But I do think that the gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger in recent years. And it's getting more and more aggressive and more and more intolerant of our beliefs. And that impacts us functionally and on the ground in every day. So as the gap gets bigger, it gets harder and harder to be an apprentice of Jesus without clashing with culture. And the bacon tests happen more and more regularly. And it's really tough. And we're coming to the point, uh, you know, the bacon moments where do we eat bacon or do we be faithful like we're coming to the point where you just can't put your head down and just get on with life and be a christian we're going to be forced to make decisions more and more and more that there is less room for silence and that is tough and that looks a lot like the book of daniel and this is our exile you know i've got here you know do we do we smoke the joint or do we stay holy and choose not to do we binge drink like everyone else or do we choose not to uh, do we buy the slave-made clothes and makeup Because that's what we need to do to look beautiful. Uh, do we stream pornography? Do we invest in fossil fuel? Do we hoard our wealth? Do we gossip and call out people on social media just because they don't like what we like? Do we live and worship like the world? Or do we accept that we're in exile? Do you know what I mean? affects us all. Uh, and, and the word for this is exile which means that the Israelites were taken out of uh, Jerusalem and put into Babylon and they ended up living in this different culture. And so it was clearly different from where they lived. The challenge and difference for us is we didn't go anywhere. (laughs) We just stayed here and the culture moved. And a lot of the politic that we see is that Christians have not yet grasped this. We're either grasping at an imaginary world that we used to have or And we're trying to get that back, you know, pretending we still have power when we don't. Or we don't know what to do with it. And so we're just assimilating, changing our names, and also changing what we eat. Um, and yet God is calling us to be a radical middle, a remnant. We didn't go anywhere, but the ground shifted, and that is incredibly hard for us. Uh, and, and we need to support each other and encourage us, and there's lots of grace in this. Uh, but we are now in a culture which is radically secular, deeply intolerant, at odds with our beliefs, a culture that is increasingly open to mocking us publicly, re-educating us systematically, and very soon legislating against what we believe, so it's illegal to believe what we believe in the public and private sphere, is happening. And uh, and there are wonderful things that I love about my society. I love being an Aussie. I love Australian culture. Uh, But there are difficulties coming our way in terms of religious freedom, and we should not close our eyes to that. We should prepare ourselves but also trust in God. I'm not saying we should be fearful because God is bigger than all things. And even in the worst of times, God is above all and is transforming us. But we should also not say, hey, it'll be all right. Religious freedom doesn't really matter. It's not really a problem. The church grows when we're persecuted. No, we don't want to be persecuted. It's not something we are aiming for. If it happens, we'll live with it. But I want to be able to raise my kids. I don't want to lose my house and I don't want to go to jail for saying the things that I need to say. Yeah? We should fight for that. It's important. And this is why we go back to the exilic literature, to books like Ruth and Lamentations and the book of Daniel because we discover in those books what it looks like to be faithful as a remnant in a time and a culture where we are not at the centre. And we can learn that in an aggressively intolerant community in the name of tolerance we can trust God. It's beautiful. So let's read one more story. Oh, no, actually, one more, one more framework. No, let's just go for the secularism. So, so secularism, okay, I would say that that is a religion. And it's a religion that, that shapes us. We swim in it. We don't even see it. We, we find it hard to articulate. But, but um, it's the dominant narrative that shapes how we see the world. It's the idea that what is material and what you can see and reproduce is true and what is spiritual is, is um, personal and relative. But it's more than that. You know, the individualism story happens in there, the technology story happens into it, the progressive story happens into it. There's lots of stories that shape us which make up this thing called secularism. Uh, you don't need to... That, that's for another time. Okay, but the, the secular story goes like this and, and it's important that we understand it because we hear it every day, constantly. Like... Every time you watch a movie, every time you look at the news, you're going to hear this story in some form, that Christianity and religion in the Western context was strongest in the Middle Ages, let's say 14th century, okay? I don't know, King Arthur or somewhere around there. A long time ago, Christianity was strong and everyone was religious. And ever since then, we've been on a long, slow decline into secular utopia, okay? Okay? It's sped up at particular points like the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, and, and, but continued through industrialization. And the last 50 years, we're finally getting rid of this terrible thing called religion. We're going to enter in a no-religion age where there's a utopia, where everyone is tolerant and kind and just and accepting, and we will be truly free. That is the secular narrative that we live in day by day, every time we turn on the news. It's the progressive story. And I'm not just saying the progressives, because the left wing are the progressives, but so are the right. We just have progressive materialism versus progressive socialism. But, but it's all the same story. So I'm not picking political sides here. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is this story is just not true. <laughs> it's not supported by evidence. It's a fabrication, and we need to know this. Okay, that's not my opinion. I mean, it just, you don't have to scratch beneath the surface too far and realize it's just not true. This is the real story uh, diagrammatically, okay? And I, I've heard this from Mark Sayers. This is where I've adapted this from. It's not my own stuff. So Christianity has always gone through periods of decline and wilderness, which is the trough, and renewal, where God has been at work Revival, you might use that term, and there's a peak. Uh, there have been bleak times throughout history, on and off, on and off, over decades, over centuries, where the church has been in decline, where people have been irreligious, where there's been great loss of faith. We can, we can recognize that in the West, can't we? Yeah, we're at the bottom. But there's also peaks, okay, which is beautiful. So in the, in the wilderness, in the times when things look terrible, God does something wonderful. Okay? He creates a seed for what will become a renewal of the Holy Spirit and a transformation of society and the church communities around us. Uh, he creates a remnant of faithful followers like you and I who remain behind and seek to follow him, just like Daniel and his friends, even in the bleakest times. People who refuse to bow down and worship the culture of the ages And who cry out to God day and night in prayer to say, God, we need you to rescue us because we have to make hard bacon choices just to survive. And we need you to come and rescue us and transform our nation and to renew this place. That's who we are. We are a remnant in exile. And God uses this faith to put a seed into the ground that creates a transformed culture. And he does it again and again and again and it leads to a place of human flourishing uh, as opposed to pain and anxiety and brokenness and hatred, which we are seeing in a culture that is breaking down. Steve McAlpine, who is a, a, a Christian and a cultural anal- analysis uh, analyst, says, The secular experiment cannot last. Refugees of the secular project are already washing up on our doors. And I've seen this happening. It is so true. Uh, And what he's saying is you cannot degrade your body and your mind and the planet endlessly. You cannot say, I'm the centre of my world and we will live without the king and just expect that things will go on tickety-boo. Eventually, people become broken. Societies become full of anxiety, depression, sadness, hatred, like intolerance. You can't just have relativism forever. You get militancy, actually, which is where we're starting to see this happening already. At the end of these peaks, uh, troughs, you always get militancy. You don't get tolerance. And that is happening. We're starting to see the seeds of it, and it's going to continue. You can't do this without God, without systematic breakdown. Now, so Mark Sayers has this fantastic talk that's worth listening to from Rebuilders Conference a few years ago, and he maps out this process over many, many decades he said in the early 19th century, which is fantastic, right? In the early 19th century, we think there was a bastion of Christianity across Europe. It's just not true. Like, what's not like this decline it goes like this. He gives a story where, in the middle of the wilderness in London in the mid 1800s, there was an Easter service in the Cathedral of London. How many people turned up to the Easter service in the Cathedral of London? Six people. In the 1800s, that is not our story. That is not what we think is the story, is it? There have been times of great decline. In Australia in the 1800s, the gold rush, everyone was just rejecting God. Uh, They were turning to violence and sex and consumptive wealth. Church attendance was dreadful in the 1800s, in parts of it. uh, When the Bendigo gold rush was happening, we were not a faithful nation. And yet, at the turn of the century, 1901, during Federation, people had to line up to get into mass, and there was mass renewals in the church in Melbourne. It was a transformative time, the peak. Uh, there was another little moment in the 1950s with Billy Graham, I think 1953 potentially. I, thousands came to faith. So you see this. Does that make sense? Uh, the story of this constant decline is not true. And that gives me encouragement because I know where we are. We're here. <laughs> we are, no one disagrees, right? We're at the bottom of a peak, of a trough where society is breaking down and everyone has left the church and we feel like we're the only ones left behind and yet this is where God says, you're the remnant, you're the seed. Be like Daniel, be like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and pray and trust and be patient and hopeful and God will deliver our nation and it's not about us. He transforms our societies through the seed of the remnant and because we call out for God's Spirit and He renews His people. And we see it all through the Old Testament, which Michael talked about, and we see it through church history. And, and this is why we have hope, because God is Yahweh Elohim above all things. God above gods, Lord above lords, King above kings, and He has a plan and we are part of it. But it's really tough to be a remnant and, and we need to be able to go back to our stories and see that they hold something much bigger. So let's pause before I finish with one last story. Just reflect in silence. Do you feel like a remnant <laughs> in Aussie culture around your friends, your work, your unis, you know, your, your colleges? And how can we live hopefully and lovingly in a society that calls us out simply for believing what we believe. Pause and reflect. So I'm going to finish with one more story from the book of Daniel. I had three, but then I realized this is going to go too long, and I'll be short on this one. But again, dive into the book of Daniel and the other stories from the exile. Uh, Daniel and the astronomers, Daniel and the talking hand, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and the fiery furnace, which is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Read them. They all say the same thing, that we can be a remnant and we can be faithful in exile. That when things are bleak, God is in control He's the Lord of Lords, above Nebuchadnezzar, above our government, above our politics, above our social media, above our corporations, and he is doing something even when we can't see it. That is what the stories say. And they're wonderful. We can be the head and not the tail to bless culture. But I'm going to finish, of course, with the lion's den, because everyone's like, well, if you don't talk about lions, it's like, blur." So we're going to talk about lions. Uh, chapter six. I do like this story. Chapter six, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, and the story is not actually about lions Okay, it's actually about love, which is why I love it. The story is about love, our love for God and how our love for God flows out to transform people around us. So in this story, Daniel and his friends are in high government positions. They have been faithful across multiple um, Governments, King Nebuchadnezzar has died. Another king, King Darius, is on the throne. And and they're basically leading uh, Babylonian society even as they're faithful to Yahweh. And uh, so what happens is that the wise men who aren't Jewish, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the magicians, they are deeply jealous of Daniel and the power he has and they want to get rid of him. It's just a very human story. (laughs) You can just open up the BBC or the ABC and it's the same story. So let's read. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. So Daniel 6, 3-5, finally these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it is something to do with the law of his God. So Daniel was a man of honesty, integrity, and faith. He served Babylon well, which is amazing, isn't it? Because he is a slave who was ripped out of his family and his culture. They destroyed his land, and yet he serves to bless the nation of Babylon. It sounds a lot like Joseph, doesn't it? So isn't that beautiful? Like that's what we can do in, in exile. And yet uh, there was no moral or ethical fault in him, so the astrologers tried to pull him down, and it had to relate to his God. And so they discovered through observation that Daniel always put Yahweh first, always put God first. And he would pray three times a day as a habit to God, even uh, when others weren't doing so. And he refused to bow down to the idols of the Babylonian gods. And so they tricked King Darius by pretending to honor him by proposing a law that it was illegal, For anyone in the whole kingdom of Babylon to pray to any god or man except for the king, because the king was divine, you could not pray to anything or anyone except for King Darius for 30 days. And they said, Anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Dun-dun-dun... So it's tricky though, isn't it? Because like, they're, just, they're just manipulating King Darius. But the king foolishly agrees. He can't see what the law is really about. He can't see why they're actually doing it. Again, I think that says a lot in our culture. But there's a showdown of faithfulness to Yahweh and, and uh, the bacon test happens again. This time it's not about bowing down to an idol in the sense of uh, an idol like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. If they refused to bow down and kiss the idol, then they would be burnt in the fiery furnace. This was simply that Daniel wasn't willing to stop worshipping the God he so desperately loved. Uh, And this is how he responds. When Daniel learnt that the decree had been published... He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. I love that. You know, if, if there was a law that would kill me if I prayed, I would probably close the windows. <laughs> but he didn't. He just, he just put it there on his sleeve. I remember being in... You know, yeah, I was in China. We went to an underground church, and, and before we had the service, they said to us, if the police come in and arrest us, pretend you're teaching us English. But then when the lady gave a sermon, she stood up and she yelled this sermon in this tiny unit, and it's just like this. No fear. They just trust in God. So three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So the short story uh, is that the king gave the order... And they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, I love this line, may your God, whom you serve continuously, rescue you. May your God, whom you serve continually, be your rescuer. And there's a sense where Darius knows he's been tricked and he grieves the fact that Daniel is being thrown into the lion's den. And he honors the affection and loyalty and courage and love that this man shows for his God. But it's about love. Ultimately, Daniel loved God above all else. And I think that that that's the heart of this series. We've talked about worship. We've talked about idolatry. We've talked about what we shouldn't do. But ultimately, what we're called to do is just love and cherish Yahweh Elohim above all else. And as we love God, He expands our life. And he, he allows us to trust in Him. And even if things go badly, and in some of the stories they do, the disciples still loved God and trusted in Him. And that was their joy. We can be those people. A greater love calls us to something greater, to love God first. And that is what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. That's what it means to be an apprentice of the one true God. So when we are in situations where we are called out, where we are facing trouble, when we are compromising our faith, where we are being excluded or fined or called out or fired or whatever's happening because we choose to love God, even if it's lovingly and respectfully, we can no longer hide in our culture. Uh, We can turn to stories like the book of Daniel and remember that God is trustworthy, God is present, that God can help us in times of trouble and that we can trust him and cling to him and he will actually rescue us. And that's what it means to be in exile. And so we finish with the beautiful part of the story that at first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. I love the impact that the faith of Daniel had had on the king, the emperor of the entire world. And yet there was something there. And Daniel, in an anguished voice, said... Oh, sorry. He said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve so continuously, been able to rescue you from the lions? And the answer is yes. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. And the king was overjoyed, and when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. Because he had trusted in his God. And this is how to live faithfully in exile. Uh, and as we refuse to bow down, we can be a blessing to those around us. So the summary is: uh, we're exiles surrounded by foreign gods, we are not to worship the idols of our culture, but be courageous, patient, and hopeful. In hard times. Because hard times are here and hard times are coming. God is above all and will bless us to be a blessing to our culture so long, and there is a so long, so long as we remain faithful to him. There's grace when we stuff up. There's grace when we make mistakes. Jesus died and rose again so that we could be forgiven. But we are still called to make the choices as apprentices of Jesus. So we're going to have communion and love, um, maybe if the band comes up, but uh, just pause there and reflect for a moment. And I actually just have one more thing I want to share with communion. The thing I love about communion, and the thing, it, the thing I was reflecting on, is that this story reminds me of a future story, uh, a future story about the resurrection of Jesus. And I love that we read in Daniel 6, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And what does it remind us of? You know, it reminds us of the resurrection story. At the first light of dawn, we read the same thing. The disciples, Mary, she ran, she ran to the tomb to see if there was a miracle in exile. And there was a tomb and a miracle, and we know that Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated evil. You know, Daniel was confident and loyal and trusted God with his heart. And he foretold a time when the Son of Man would come and actually do this on a much bigger scale. And Jesus is the Son of Man. He actually defeated death. He rose again so that we can trust that God is above all things. And no matter what happens, we have faith in him. All right. So, Lord, thank you that you are bigger than all things. You're the God of gods, you are the Lord of lords, and you are the King of Kings. Help us to see with eyes that see. Help us to see when things are bleak and our life is in trouble, when there is fear all around us, help us to see that you are doing your thing and that we can trust in you and we can remember that a remnant has always been the seeds of renewal through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.